Movie of the Week. Presenting the world premiere of an original motion picture produced especially for ABC. Hey everyone, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Making the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. On this episode, we take a look at some of the prominent selections featured on the ABC Movie of the Week. We're looking at The Immortal, The Over the Hill Gang, Duel, Brian's Song, The Night Stalker, and The Night Strangler. I went into detail previously about the ABC movie of the week on the Jerry Gross episode of the podcast. That was episode 48, which featured all the kind strangers. The Bounty Man, featured back in episode 7, was also an ABC movie of the week, which was why it had no business being on a grindhouse box set. One interesting bit of information regarding the advent of made-for-TV movies was because the movie industry was protective of their films, charging high fees to broadcast. Despite the movie studios viewing television as second-rate entertainment, they still saw them as a threat. The ABC Movie of the Week was a ratings hit, along with Monday Night Football, and ABC became one of the top networks. Now let's dive into the movies. Spoilers ahead. We got movies! This man has a singular advantage over other men. Ben Richards is immune to every known disease, including old age. Periodic transfusions of his blood can give other men a second, a third lifetime, perhaps more. Find Ben Richards! The effects of a transfusion are only temporary. I must therefore control Ben Richards' life permanently. He's the most valuable man in the world. But he's no good to me dead. His brother may have the same kind of blood. We've got to find him before Richards does. If you had million dollar blood, where would you hide? I didn't ask for this. I was a test driver. I liked the job. One day the doctor told me I had some kind of special blood. I don't understand it. But I know this. Everything they're offering... I don't want. I gotta live free. Jordan Braddock is a millionaire barely clutching to life after his plane crashes. His personal physician, Dr. Pierce, says he only has a few hours left to live. To buy Braddock more time, Pierce gives Braddock donated blood to allow Braddock to get his affairs in order. Not only does the blood keep Braddock alive, but also improves his condition. He's even noticeably younger. The donated blood was taken from Ben Richards, a test driver for one of Braddock's companies. Dr. Pierce talks with Ben to ask him to donate more blood for testing. 
Turns out Ben's blood has all known antibodies and natural immunities to disease, allowing for a prolonged lifespan, five times longer than a typical human. Braddock soon finds out about Ben and offers him immense wealth to contribute blood to him on a regular basis. Braddock claims the blood will be used to help mankind. Ben sees through the facade and declines Braddock's offer. This denial unfortunately leads to a life on the run. As long as Braddock lives, Ben will be a targeted man. During the long chase, Ben finds some unexpected allies and encounters enemies coming for his blood. Not to be confused with the Canadian TV series with Lorenzo Lamas, The Immortal premiered on September 30th, 1969 as the ABC Movie of the Week. What could have been an interesting moral dilemma character study turned out to be a rehash of the Man on the Run theme executed more efficiently with The Fugitive. Ben Richards was a twist on the fugitive trope. Instead of being framed for a murder he didn't commit, he has a MacGuffin that interested parties want to get their hands on. The fugitive approach was due to the series going into syndication and was fresh in the minds of many TV viewers. It feels like the show had a lot of potential if given the right showrunner. Imagine Rod Sterling of The Twilight Zone at the helm of this program. It certainly would justify an update reboot under the direction of Vince Gilligan. At the time, Formulaic was the safest bet, much to the show's detriment. Sadly, no DVD was released for the show. Unfortunately, uh, bootlegging is your only option for the series. The pilot movie was previously on YouTube, but not anymore. Christopher George played Ben Richards. George captures the everyman in Richards. He's a regular guy caught in an extraordinary situation. George was a TV regular that found a nice late career in exploitation. We previously saw George in Fulci's City of the Living Dead. He was also in Pieces, The Exterminator, Enter the Ninja with Franco Nero, and Grizzly. Carol Lindley was Sylvia, Ben's fiancée. Lindley goes through a gamut of emotions. Tenderness, glee at the news of Ben's gifted blood, somber at the distance that has to be put between them, Lindley gets to show her range. Barry Sullivan handled the role of millionaire Jordan Braddock. While the performance is two-dimensional, the motivation is relatable. We will all die eventually. We must make the most of the time we have, yet we would all go to great lengths to extend our lifespan as much as possible. Ralph Bellamy has the supporting character of Dr. Pierce. It's a small part, but he gets the plot going. He is the one who connects Ben with Braddock. We don't see Pierce express his remorse for his part, but Sylvia provides that development to the audience. It seems like you've been gone years, darling, instead of months. Like you, I'm alone most of the time. Dr. Pierce comes by occasionally, but I really think it's just to keep me company. He's a beaten man, darling. He still feels that everything that happened was his fault. Bellamy appeared in a few classics, notably The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. and His Girl Friday with Cary Grant. The Immortal is an enjoyable made-for-TV movie that fails to offer the most for its potential and premise. Under better guidance, there could have been a stronger production. Yet, as is, the film is still an enjoyable rainy day viewing.
A small western town is in the middle of a contentious mayoral election. The corrupt Mayor Lindy is defending his post from Jeff Rose, a local shopkeeper and newspaper presser. Former Texas Ranger Captain Hayes is visiting his daughter, Hannah Rose, who is the wife of Jeff. Hayes is present when the sheriff and his deputies dismantle the printing press. Hayes and Jeff try to fight back, but to little avail. Hayes promises to help Jeff and Hannah by bringing in his old band of rangers, Nash Crawford, Jason Fitch, and Gentleman George. With renewed vigor, the band of Texas rangers confront the mayor, but are embarrassed in a shootout. The rangers quickly realize they aren't as fast as they used to be. Yet, they still have their wits and plan to outsmart their younger targets. The Over the Hill Gang is the kind of movie that television was meant for. Lighthearted, whimsy, and suitable for the whole family. You have a great mix of vintage western actors and a crop of young fresh faces. Director Jean Yarbrough was perfect for this old school ensemble comedy. He worked frequently with Abbott and Costello, notably the naughty 90s which gave us the famous Who's on First routine. I love baseball. Well, we all love baseball. When we get to St. Louis, will you tell me the guy's name's on the team so I go to see them in that St. Louis ballpark? I'll be able to know those fellas. Well, now, it's all right, folks. All right. Excuse me. All, all right. right. I want to find out the fellow's name. As long as it's okay I'm, with I'm the audience. I'm crazy about baseball. Now, will you stand still? Pick up your hand. Go pick up your hand. Okay. Now, look. Then you'll go and peddle your popcorn and don't interrupt the act anymore? Yes, sir. All right. But you know, strange may seem they give ball players nowadays very peculiar names. Funny names? Pink names, pet not, names. Not as funny as my name, Sebastian Dinwiddie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Funnier than that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Now, on the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. So who gets it? Why shouldn't he? Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's white? Yes. Yarborough also collaborated with the Bowery Boys, Desi Arnaz, and horror icon Rondo Hatton. The four leads were veterans of the classic westerns of the 30s and 40s. Pat O'Brien, as Captain Hayes, still holds the idealistic nature of the Rangers. Walter Brennan, as Nash Crawford, still talks a mean game. Edgar Buchanan, as Jason Fitch, plays up the eyesight-related humor. Chill Wills, as Gentleman George, adds charm to his card-cheating drunkard performance. There's no shortage of solid talent in the supporting roles. Jack Elam plays the sheriff henchman of the mayor. Teen heartthrob Ricky Nelson has his scenes as Jeff Rose. Real-life wife of Ricky Nelson, Kristen Nelson, brings heart as Hannah. Hollywood tough guy Myron Healy and the father of Crispin Glover, Bruce Glover, stand out among the sheriff's deputies. Keep an eye out for William Smith as one of the hired guns in the saloon during the film's shootout finale. The Over the Hill Gang was a fun, harmless western featuring some top talents of the old school and the then present. It's a quick paced watch that has some genuinely funny moments. As of this recording, it's free to watch on Amazon Prime Video. 
bus, please. Please, come on. Come on, back in the bus. David Mann is on a business trip to visit a client. His commute will take him through the Mojave Desert. Mann comes up to a tanker truck and passes him. Moments later, the tanker truck passes him. Mann soon catches up with the truck and passes him again. The truck passes him, blowing its horn. Mann passes the truck once more, then speeds up, leaving it behind. Mann arrives at a gas station, but soon the truck pulls up across the gas pumps from him. From there, the situation escalates. The driver of the truck pursues man to no end, whether at a truck stop diner, a tourist trap, or at a school bus stalled on the road. The truck is there to torment David Mann. Duel is nothing short of an amazing exercise in suspense and tension, yet it couldn't be a more simple premise than a man in a small car being chased by an unknown driver of a tanker rig. You had capable people in front of the camera and behind it. Duel also has the honor of premiering on television, but was such a huge success it played theatrically as well. The film at the beginning captures the claustrophobia of the city, the gradual transitions to the isolation of the desert. When the truck enters the film, the spacing reverts back to claustrophobia with close-ups of the truck in the rearview mirror. Duel marked the feature film debut of one Steven Spielberg. Up to that point, Spielberg was a TV director, helming episodes of The Night Gallery and Columbo. With the monster success of Duel, Spielberg made the transition to feature films, directing Jaws a mere four years later. Richard Matheson wrote the original short story of Duel, as well as the screenplay. Only makes sense given both Matheson's TV credits, highlighted by The Twilight Zone, and his then-frequent collaborations with Roger Corman on the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. I spoke at length on Matheson on episode 16 for the I Am Legend films. This was an atypical performance for lead Dennis Weaver. He was primarily a Western tough guy actor. Seeing him play a guy who was physically and emotionally vulnerable had to be a bit of a shock for audiences in the early 1970s. Weaver makes it work and gives a great performance. Duel stands as a strong indicator of Spielberg's talent, but also some of the best storytelling and suspense on a minimal platform. This is one to revisit, or if you're a Spielberg fan and missed it, then watch this ASAP. Young football player Gail Sayers arrives at the training camp for the Chicago Bears. He meets fellow player Brian Piccolo, a rookie. Piccolo gives Sayers some advice that backfires with Coach Hallis. 
What starts out as a tense rivalry becomes a bond of respect between Sayers and Piccolo. The two become a groundbreaking moment, as they are the first white player and black player to be bunked together. From there, the friendship grows, one that isn't broken even when Sayers suffers a knee injury. But things take a turn when Piccolo begins his fight with cancer. For its time, Brian's song was one of the biggest successes of the ABC Movie of the Week. It managed the pull in a viewership of 32.9, which means that a third of the adults in America were watching this movie. This was unheard of, even for a TV movie. Surprisingly, the film rarely touches on Sayer's race. There's a few dialogue exchanges that touch on race, but it's not the focus of the film. The focus is on the relationship between two gridiron brothers. That's something you wouldn't see today without the production pulling out a soapbox to stand on. The film was a major award winner and a favorite of the communities of sports fans and sports broadcasters. The Directors Guild of America, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the PGA, the Peabody, and TV Land all gave honors to this film. Former ESPN sportscaster Rich Eisen spoke highly of the film, saying it's the film that a man can cry with, and it's hard not to get choked up with that final exchange between Piccolo and Sayers. Director Buzz Kulick was a TV directing regular. Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, The Twilight Zone, a heavy hitter in the platform. James Conn as Piccolo gives one of the best performances I've ever seen of him. This was one year before his turn as Sonny and the Godfather. Then you had Rollerball, Flesh and Bone, Misery, Alienation. He was the go-to for an on-screen tough guy. Fans of the Lando Calrissian Billy D. Williams may be in for a surprise with his role as Gale Sayers. He doesn't have the charm here as he does in The Empire Strikes Back. He plays up the timid, quiet nature of Sayers. Similar to Weaver and Duel, this is an atypical performance by Williams. The supporting cast is filled with top character actors. Jack Warden as Coach Hallis, Bernie Casey as J.C. Caroline, and David Huddleston as Ed McCaskey. All give solid side renditions. Brian's song is a drama that manages to appeal to sports fans and the athletic community. It's a film not about race or identity politics, but as a bond between two men in the field. Even as a non-sports fan, it is worth a watch. The best example of great horror, and it's all about story now, and that's what it's all about. It's all about story. And I will take this with me for the rest of my life. I have never come across a better story than the Night Stalker. Las Vegas has been plagued by a series of brutal murders. Victims were all women with severe blood loss and nasty neck wounds. Local news reporter Carl Kojak suggests that the killer is a vampire, or at least shows the behavior of one. The authorities laugh off the idea, dismissing Kojak's observation. 
The authorities identify the suspect as Janos Skorzeny, a former war doctor in his mid-70s. One night, after a long pursuit, the cops have the suspect cornered. After the suspect assaults police, they open fire. None of the bullets affect him, allowing him to escape, leaving the police stunned at their ineffectiveness. Desperate to hide the embarrassment, the police have no choice but to consider Kuljak's tactics. Kuljak wants each officer armed with a crucifix, a wooden stake, and a mallet. The deal is Skorzeny must be apprehended alive and brought in for questioning. The film leads up to the climactic confrontation between Kuljak and Skorzeny. The Night Stalker premiered on January 11, 1972. There was the basic marketing and advertisements, a few TV spots, yet something resonated with the TV audience. The feature performed better than anyone could have expected. It had a 33.2 share, higher than that of Brian's song, which held the record. For a simple horror film, it captured the imagination of viewers everywhere, marking a high tide for made-for-TV films as an entertainment offering. Sadly, TV movies have gone downhill since. The closest we get today are the Asylum offerings on the Sci-Fi Channel, Sharknado, and all that nonsense. Curtis was around to see them fall into despair, and he never held back on sharing his thoughts on the degradation of the made-for-TV movie. Today, it has to be meaningful. It has to be socially significant. It has to be filled with stars. It has to have, you name it, you know, come on. I get sick of the whole game, and everybody plays that game today. To try to sell a television movie today is the most impossible thing in the world. First thing they say to you is, well, we like the idea, but there's nothing special about it. It has to be an event. The Night Stalker is an excellent example of what happens in TV horror when the stars align and the right talent is in the right place at the right time. The production began with Dan Curtis discovering the unpublished novel by Jeff Rice. Curtis was the mastermind behind Dark Shadows and Trilogy of Terror. Adapting the story to film was the duty of Richard Matheson, who we've discussed previously on plenty of occasions. Performing directorial duties was John Llewellyn Moxie, the auteur of City of the Dead and Circus of Fear. Darren McGavin's turn as Carl Kuljak was one of his most memorable performances, second only to the old man from the holiday classic A Christmas Story. McGavin had that everyman charm and was determined to get to the truth of the situation. Joining McGavin was a great collection of character actors. Simon Oakland played Vincenzo, the news editor. Oakland as Vincenzo would be the only other character to appear in the follow-up film and TV series. Claude Aikens, Elisha Cook Jr., Carol Lindley, and Larry Linville of M.A.S.H. provide McGavin with good foils to act off of. Barry Atwater as Janos Skorzeny may be one of the greatest vampires ever on screen. He lacks the sex appeal of a Lugosi or Christopher Lee. He's very much the prototype for the feral vampires in 30 Days of Night. Skorzeny is a ferocious, bloodthirsty beast who will not let anything stop him from getting his needed blood. We never see him talk, although other characters vouch for his ability to speak. To see him actually speak would ruin the edge of the character. Atwater played the character just right. The Night Stalker is a required viewing for horror fans. It has one of the greatest on-screen vampires. Darren McGavin as Carl Koljak is one of horror's unsung heroes, a simple but effective story of a reporter tracking down a vampire. 
This is one to watch. Is it possible for one man to have been responsible for a series of unsolved homicides spanning a period of over a century? Watch The Night Strangler, a chilling story of suspense starring Dara McGavin on the Tuesday Movie of the Week. After the events of The Night Stalker, news editor Vincenzo finds work in Seattle, Washington. One night, he happens to run into Carl Koljak. Koljak is still adamant about the events of Las Vegas, but no one believes him. Out of pity, Vincenzo offers Koljak a job at his newspaper. Recently, a killer has been murdering women in the Seattle area, strangling them and draining some of their blood. Around their necks are traces of rotting flesh. The odd thing is that similar murders have occurred in the past every 21 years for as far back as the newspaper archivist can find, which dates back to the late 1800s. Much like Vegas, the authorities are trying to keep the murders hushed so as not to ruin the tourist appeal of the city. They take in Koljak's theories only when they have no other choice. Yes, this is pretty much the same exact story as The Night Stalker, except the city and the killer have been changed. A year after the hit success of The Night Stalker, ABC greenlit a follow-up film, and while it does tread on very similar waters, this was in the early 1970s before sequelitis got out of control like it has now. The idea of a sequel was a novel concept, and The Night Strangler is different enough that people can still enjoy it as its own feature. Ratings-wise, The Night Strangler performed almost as well as The Night Stalker, Enough so that the TV series was greenlit by ABC. The music score by Bob Copert retains the same theme for both The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler. Richard Matheson returns as the TV movie's screenwriter and found it challenging to come up with another monster for Seattle, eventually coming up with the immortal alchemist. Dan Curtis took over the directorial duties. Darren McGavin and Simon Oakland respectively return as Coljack and Vincenzo. They have a true chemistry this time around, a chemistry they would carry over to the TV series. Dan Curtis filled the supporting roles with character actors he himself grew up with from film and television. There was Wally Cox, the voice of Underdog, Margaret Hamilton of The Wizard of Oz, horror legend John Carradine, Al Lewis from The Munsters, Scott Brady, Joanne Flug of the movie MASH, and Nina Wayne of Bewitched. Richard Anderson had the unenviable task to follow up Barry Atwater's Yano Skorzeny. Anderson, as the immortal alchemist, Dr. Richard Malcolm, lacked any predatory or monstrous qualities. He came off as bourgeois and egotistical. He was the antithesis of Skorzeny and was given much less screen time as a villain. The Night Strangler is a good movie in its own right, but pales in comparison to The Night Stalker. McGavin and Oakland are fantastic in their roles. A game group of character actors support the lead. But it's predictable given it repeats many of the plot beats of the Night Stalker. It's good, but not great.
And that wraps up this episode of Making the Movies. Sorry for putting this one up so late. I've been bombarding myself with projects and will be cutting back for the remainder of the year. I'll still do the podcast and the three tenors, but Petrifying Bijou is going on the shelf. I'm not retiring it permanently, but I'm putting it on hiatus for the foreseeable future. Next time I'm making the movies, I'll be taking a look at a topic I put on the back burner. Now I'm ready to tackle the films of Rudger Hauer as a tribute of his passing, similar to last year's episode on Billy Drago. I'll be looking at Blade Runner, not the director's cut. I'll also be looking at The Hitcher, Lady Hawk, Nighthawks, Split Second, and Hobo with a Shotgun. That episode will drop on Wednesday, September 16th. Yes, Wednesday will be the new upload date due to my changing full-time work schedule. If you enjoy this program and want to see it grow, consider a one-time donation via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. I have a subscribe start starting at $1.99 a month. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I have my BitChute channel as well. All of that in the description box. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Making the Movies. Take care and stay safe out there.